Well, this morning, uh, we are excited to start a brand new series called Encounters. And it's this idea of when Jesus intersects your life. And I kind of want to ask this question, and I want us to kind of go here and think about this for just a minute. So just entertain me for a minute, if you would. What would it be like to encounter Jesus physically, face-to-face? I just want us to think about that question for a minute. In fact, if you feel comfortable, I'd like for you, if you could, just close your eyes for just a minute. And just try to visualize what that would be like. What would it be like to encounter Jesus physically, face-to-face? What would he look like? What would he sound like? What would he say to you? What would, what would you be doing? Would you feel nervous in that moment? Would you feel joyful in that moment? What would it be like to encounter Jesus physically, face to face? All right, you can open your eyes now. So a few years ago, I was actually in college at this time, and uh, my dad said, hey, let's, I'm going on this pastor's conference, and I'd love for someone to go with me. And I was in college. I wasn't a pastor at the time or anything like that. But he said, why don't you come with me? I said, great, I'd love to. So we flew or drove down to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and there was a conference there. And I remember we were up in the balcony on the first night And uh, on the very first night, I I remember looking down onto the floor, probably like you guys in the risers are doing, looking down onto the floor. And I noticed someone familiar, but I'd never met them before, but I knew who they were. Very, very popular person at the time named Jim Caviezel, all right? Jim Caviezel, this is the guy. uh, He actually just had a movie that came out this year. um, And I remember seeing him from afar and, and, and keep in mind, this is the star of the movie The Passion of the Christ. This was, this was the man who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And I remember this was right around the time where that movie had just come out. And I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie in the theater, but I remember as a young man in college, that movie really did. It kind of had a profound impact. God used that to really visualize for me a few things about who Jesus was and what he was about. And uh, really, in a lot of ways, brought in parts of the gospel to life in my own heart. He used this. And so I'm seeing this man down, down front. He looked just like this uh, with his nice clean, sh- or clean uh, facial hair and his blue eyes and his nice hair. And I remember thinking, I want to meet this guy. And so I walked down there and I introduced myself. And I, you know, I don't remember what I said. You know, if you ever meet someone famous, you're just like, uh, you know. And here's the thought I had, and don't make fun of me, this is just where I was. I remember shaking his hand, and thank God I didn't say this to him, but I remember shaking his hand, looking into his blue eyes, (laughs) thinking to myself, this is kind of what I visualize when I'm praying to Jesus. (laughs) I didn't want to say that to him, like, you're who I see when I pray, you know? But it was this weird moment. Well, then, later, we go back to the hotel, and the hotel that the conference had put us up at was a really nice hotel. And we were staying there, and guess who's staying at the hotel with us? Jim Caviezel. And so we're going down to, like, the workout area, and I'm thinking, I'm going to work out with this guy, right? 
And uh, so we go into the workout area, and as you can tell, I don't really do much. He was, he was killing it. And afterwards, I was on the phone. Right outside was this pool, and it kind of was like one of those infinity pool things, you know, the, the, the optical illusion of how the water just runs over to the side or whatever. And, and I remember it was just me and him out there, and I was like on the phone talking to Crystal, and I was kind of like laid back in a relaxing chair. We had like a little break or whatever. And I remember Jim Caviezel was literally on the infinity pool edge, also on the phone, and he's literally walking <laughs> on the edge of the pool. And I'm literally talking to Crystal, and I, this is before like cell phone, like good cell phones where you can take a picture. I'm literally laying there, and my perspective is this man is walking on water. He's walking <laughs> on water as we speak. And here's the truth. Like this is this is the truth. Everyone, when you had your eyes closed for just a minute, everyone has a picture, a thought, an image of physically who Jesus is and what he's about. In this series, we want to look at that. Who is Jesus? When you encounter Jesus, here's the truth. It requires you to, one, answer who Jesus is, When you encounter Jesus, it requires you to answer who Jesus is. But secondly, it requires you to adjust who you are. That when we truly have an encounter with Christ, it requires us to answer the question, who Jesus is. And it also requires us to adjust our lives. That every time we have this encounter. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning. And, and I have a, a, a confession to make to you. We, we really planned this series months ago. And really the heart behind the series was kind of like this. We have a group of 25 that were actually supposed to go to Israel in just a couple of weeks. And the thought process was, well, Since these guys can't go to Israel, since the rest of the church can't go to Israel, let's take a portion or a a part of Israel, let's bring it to them. And then things happened that are very sad and very heartbreaking, and and it came to the fact that none of us right now are going to Israel. But the the truth still remains. Our desires, pastors, is we wanted to kind of just bring a few places into your perspective of where Jesus walked and some of the encounters of people that, had, that, they, that they had with Jesus. And so today, we're looking at the encounter at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. And at this point in the story, if you read there in Matthew 16, Jesus has been ministering with his disciples for about two and a half years. So when we pick up Matthew 16, he's been ministering with these guys for two and a half years. And Jesus had gained a lot of popularity with the masses. Like there were a lot of people following Jesus, thinking he was going to do some kind of socio-political economic change. They didn't really know what he was going to do, but they thought he was going to do some, some wild things. And some shakeout was going to happen within the government. And Jesus decides because of these things, to take them to Caesarea Philippi. Now, here's what's weird about Caesarea Philippi. It's a city that's 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, and hardly a single person in the city was a Jewish person. 
Now remember, Jesus and his disciples, they were all Jewish. They were all a part of the nation of Israel, the people of God. And they're going to a place that did not have that. In fact, if you go there today, if you go step there today, this very spot right here, you can actually go and be at, and you will see carved images, carved idols, and God worship, little God worship, all over the place. It's saturated with it, and this is a picture, really, of kind of how things went. In fact, if you see over here on the far left, you can see kind of behind that temple, this little hole or cave, that's this same cave right here that's still there today. And at the time, water flowed out of that cave. There was a giant well, a giant spring there where water flowed out of, and the people at the time believed that the gods would go hibernate in this cave during the winter. They're kind of like bears, I guess. And so they would hibernate in this cave in the waters And man, I got to tell you, this was a bad place. Like lots of bad things happened here. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But prostitution was rampant in the city. This would be for the entire region of Israel. This was like the red light district of, of Israel. And what's interesting about this is Jesus is taking his disciples there. It's literally like they're, uh, they're going on a staff retreat. Like, can you imagine Brian Glisson saying, hey, guys, we're going on a staff retreat. We're hitting Vegas, right? Like, that's kind of <laughs> the thought process here is they're going on this staff retreat, and they show up here in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus starts the staff retreat with this really great icebreaker question. It's a popular question with a superficial answer. So look at the story here in verse 13. Jesus says, or or, uh, the, the writer says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say I am? Now keep in mind, Jesus did not, asked this question because he was insecure of himself, right? Like, it wasn't like he was asking this like sometimes we do, like, hey, what are they saying about me? He wasn't asking because he was insecure. He wasn't asking because he didn't know. He's God. He knows everything. He's not asking for that. So why is he asking the question? Jesus wants their answer to reveal something to them. Like he knows that if he can get them to to think about this question and answer this question, it's going to reveal something to them about the question and the answer. And, And so he asked them this question. And here's the thing. Everyone, including the disciples, still seems to have different answers to this question. Look at what the disciples said in verse 14. And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, the disciples are giving him a very kind, but a little superficial answer. Because here's what we know to be true. There's a lot of people that don't think this nicely of Jesus. In fact, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they actually at one point call him Satan, Beelzebub. They say, hey, no, he's this. But the disciples are trying to be kind in this moment, and so they're listing off these different people. And what's weird is they're like, they mentioned John the Baptist. Like, how is he John the Baptist? John the Baptist was literally alive the same time Jesus was. 
But what's weird about this is, if you guys remember King Herod? King Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. And at this time, they believed in something called the transmigration of souls. I know that's a real nice deep term for you. But here's what it meant. King Herod was the one that kind of started this rumor. And what he thought is because he beheaded John, he thought that Jesus was coming back or that the soul of John the Baptist had migrated to Jesus and that Herod was a little fearful of Jesus that he was coming back to get vengeance on him for taking his head, John the Baptist. So this was a thought during this time. Some people said he was Elijah. Remember the prophet Elijah, he never died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. Maybe this is Elijah coming back. Some people said Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who tried to turn the nation back to God. And here's what's weird about this. For most of us, if we had been compared to these men, this would have been a huge compliment, right? Like if someone came to me and said, Jonathan, I just want to tell you, your ministry is a lot like the ministry of Billy Graham. It's as effective as that. Like most, most young pastors would be like, wow, what a great compliment. And what they're doing here is they're trying to be nice to Jesus. They're trying to give him all the positive things they've heard about him and what I love here is that even if this was really if you think about it a low estimation of who Jesus was that even if Jesus is compared to the greatest people to ever live it still grossly underestimates his worth that this is what we know to be true about God that even today people have very low estimations of who Jesus is. And it, maybe it's you in this room. Maybe your estimation of Jesus is lower than you think. Or maybe it's people out in the community. You go and ask a hundred people who Jesus is. You're going to get a lot of different responses. And quite frankly many of them are going to be really low estimations. Of who Jesus is and what he's really worth. I grew up uh, in the 80s. Anybody grow up in the 80s like as a child? Okay, so a few of you in here. Everyone else is older. That's okay. Um, I grew up in the 80s, 80s child, and we did a lot of weird things in the 80s. Some of you uh, that are older, you were the parents during the 80s, and you did this. So I'm going to make fun of you for a minute. But one of the things that we did in the 80s is we took really, really weird photographs, all right? Um, the Olin Mills photo, right? No, if you're like the owner of Olin Mills, I'm sorry, but this was weird. You would have a picture of you, and then you'd have some ghost image of you to the side. And it was like, what's my mom trying to say here? Did she want twins or I don't know. This was something that was big in the 80s for our family. We would take Olin Mills' picture, and my mom, for whatever reason, thought she'd bring it into the 90s as well because she continued... <laughs> To put me in pictures like this, and uh, wow. You know, you, you had the prop, the prop sat in your lap, and you took the picture, and you took a hundred different photographs of this. And this was kind of how a lot of us grew up. This Olin Mills, rosy, perfect hair in place, props, everything in place, idea of who we are. And I know it's kind of funny, but I want us to think about it this way. Many of us have grown up with an Olin Mills Jesus. 
Many of us have grown up like this. Like felt board Jesus, when you had the felt board and you would put Jesus on the felt board and he always seemed to be a white guy. Pasty, white Jesus with blue eyes, long flowing feathered hair because they had Pantene Pro-V back there. Perfect teeth, draped in a fashionable robe made in Italy, matching open-toed flip-flops. And they would sometimes do it just like Olin Mills. They'd stick a shepherd's crook in his hand, right? And this is something that, like, literally, after the third century, people started painting Jesus like this. And what really what it is is we've gotten to a place for some of us that we've, we've kind of emasculated and whitewashed Jesus into our image, what we want him to be, what we want him to look like. He probably looks just like me. And this was a problem because Jesus' description in Scripture is nothing like that. Isaiah 53.2 says this, He, Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, this is an interesting verse here, but I want you to think about this for a minute. This is not the picture we just saw. We're not talking about a feeble white Jesus here. We're talking about an Arab carpenter furniture-making Jesus. A man who has probably dingy teeth, maybe matted hair, rough hands. A guy who looked like every other guy in the city, in the country he was living in. Yet it's so easy for the masses, the people around us, to dictate to us who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. And the problem with that, Charles Spurgeon said this, the problem with that is that Christ is sometimes up in the market and sometimes down in the market. But mark you, Christ is not in the market at all. He can neither be bought nor sold. They say well of him one day, and they speak ill of him another day. What matters, what matters of what they say? He needs no honor from them, and he fears not their dishonor. Unless they will believe in him as Lord and Savior, it is of no importance what they think of him. That ultimately it doesn't matter what the masses think of Jesus. And Jesus is trying to point his disciples into this thought process and really us. That it doesn't matter what the world says about who Jesus is. And the reason we know this is because look at the very next thing Jesus says. He asks a personal question with a supernatural answer. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? All right, now that we know who other people say I am, who do you say that I am? This very personal question. This was the real reason he had brought them here and the real question to be asked. In fact, this is the question placed before every person that encounters Jesus. Who do you say 
Jesus is. And here's the great thing about it. Your answer doesn't change who Jesus is. Your answer changes who you are. Verse 15. He said to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, it's important to know this isn't the last name of Jesus, right? We've heard this before. People say the name Jesus Christ, and, and sometimes you hear it in a, in a context of a swear word or, or, or where they're angry about something. Christ is not Jesus' last name, all right? Christ is another name. Uh, the, the other name there is the Messiah. It's another word for the Messiah or the chosen one, that Jesus is the chosen one. And this was a callback all the way to Genesis 3.15, the first promise of this Messiah, this chosen one, this Christ, was all the way back in the third chapter of the very first book at the very beginning of history. When all of humanity falls into darkness, Jesus, or God, promises us Jesus is going to come and crush the head of the enemy. And then between that point and this point where Peter's saying there's, there's over, 300, over 300 prophecies that continue to fall in line of saying, this is the one, this is the guy. And Peter sees him for who he is. This is who Jesus is. He is the true and better Adam, right? The true and better Adam. He's the firstborn over all creation, but he didn't fall to temptation. He's better than Adam. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Abraham. He's the true and better Isaac. You remember Isaac, the willing sacrifice? Jesus was the true and better willing sacrifice. He's the true and better Jacob. The true and better Moses. Moses leads his people out of Egypt and they, they, he delivers them. God uses him to deliver them. But here's the truth. They go back into bondage. Jesus is the true and better Moses that he takes us one day to a promised land where we will no longer be in bondage. He's the true and better King David. A man after God's own heart and yet a murderer, an adulterer, that's not our Jesus. He's the true and better form of King David. He's the true and better Passover lamb. He's the true and better prophet. He's the true and better high priest. And he's the true and better father that every single one of us desires to have. To encounter Jesus is to believe that he is more than a man. He is Messiah, the true and better. And Jesus is the one our soul has deeply desired since the day we were created. And I'm going to be honest with you. This picture of Jesus is not going to do a thing for you when you walk through cancer. When you walk through abandonment. When you walk through abuse. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is the guy that's not going to do a thing for you. You're not walking through this life being held by the dainty hand of a little prince. You're being upheld by the calloused hand of a victorious king that had that same hand 
in the dirt of humanity and on a wooden cross. And Revelation tells us that same hand has the power and the ability to hold stars in his hand. And his arm is not too short to save. That when we encounter Jesus, like Peter encountered Jesus, we see God for who he truly is. Not this made up, our image version of ourselves, but the man he really was, the Messiah he truly is. It changes us. It changes our view of him, and it changes us. And verse 17 says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter didn't just come up with this on his own. Are you kidding me? The guy hardly ever said anything right. No, what, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying this, that to encounter Jesus is to acknowledge that we come to Jesus on his terms, not ours. That Jesus' words here reveal our need for a supernatural understanding of him that goes beyond flesh and blood. I think sometimes I, I think in my head that if I could just get in a time machine and just go back to the first century Israel and be there and see the miracles and watch Jesus physically with my own flesh and blood eyes and see everything he's doing, that I will understand him. But according to this, that's not what's true. Jesus is saying here, hey, you need a divine revelation from God to truly reveal who I am. And when Peter answers who Jesus is, then Jesus makes a powerful declaration with a significant identity about Peter. Look at this. When you encounter Jesus, just like Peter encountered Jesus, it changes your identity. It changes who you are. You are, first of all, a new person. Jesus says to Peter in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter. Now, here's the thing about this name Peter. Peter wasn't a name in the first century. It wasn't a name that like parents called their children because all it meant was little stone or pebble. No little boys were walking around being called Peter. No, Jesus gives Simon the name Peter all the way back on the first day he met him in John 1. 42, he gives him the name Peter there. And here Jesus is reminding Peter, he's reminding him of that new name that he gave him on the first day that Peter started following him. That he gave him something new. It was a new person that was created. Second. Corinthians 5.17 tells us this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That when you encounter Jesus, you go from a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, a daughter of disobedience. You go from that to a child of God, an heir to the kingdom. That you're a new person, but not only a new person, you acquire a new purpose. Look at the rest of verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
This is interesting. This is the first time the word church is used in the entire Bible. And it's said right here by Jesus. Right here. Church, the word there is ecclesia. It means assembly of people. It's not a place, all right? It's not Jesus saying, I'm going to build my building here. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm going to build my assembly. I'm going to build my people. And and think about this when Jesus is saying this. We are months away, months away from Jesus being crucified, just a few months away from Jesus resurrecting from, from the dead, and less than a year away from the church actually being birthed there in Acts chapter 2. Just a few months away. The purpose of these disciples is about to completely change. Now Jesus, I want to be clear, Jesus is not talking that he's going to build his church on Peter. All right, This is an important thing to know. He's talking about himself, not Peter. This is one of the many things that we divert and disagree with the Catholic church on. Because they look at this and they say, oh, it's Peter that they build the church on. But Peter, by his own testimony in 1 Peter 2, tells us, hey, I'm not the rock. Jesus is the rock. He's the chief cornerstone that all of this is built on. This passage here, these words that Jesus says, it's a play on words about Peter's name. Because Peter's name means, or Peter's name is Petros, which means little stone or pebble, right? That's what his name means, Petros. So read this with me here. And I tell you, you are Peter. You are little stone, Petros. And on this rock, the word changes. It's the word Petra. It's not talking about a little stone anymore. He's talking about a big stone. Some translations say a mountain. And on this mountain, I will build My church, Jesus is talking about himself as the rock or the foundation of the church. The church, one pastor said it this way, the church isn't built on pebbles Peter, it's built on mountain Messiah. And then Jesus shows Peter the purpose of the church, the people of God. God calls the people of God, the church, to overcome the place of the enemy, the gates of hell. Verse 18 continues, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love how Jesus does this because Jesus is saying these words and I really believe this. I believe he has multiple meanings by what he's saying here. Because what do we know a gate to be about? It's a place of defensive strongholds, right? It doesn't move or gain ground. A gate doesn't move, like move towards you or move back. It holds something in place or it protects whatever it's behind. A gate is not an offensive piece of equipment. So who's on the offense here? It's not the gate. It's the people of God. It's the people of God. God is calling us to take up ground from the kingdom of darkness that the gates of hell cannot hold the kingdom of God. It can't do it. But he's not just saying this. He's saying also a place of depraved strategy. 
And this is kind of hard for us to understand. We kind of have to get back into the first century when we think about this. But in the ancient world, the city gates were where things would happen. Like if you were going to plan a war or if you were going to plan an attack on somewhere, you know where you do it? You do it at the city gates. Everyone would come to the city gates, and that's where business transactions happen. That's where strategy was formed in the ancient world. It's equivalent in this context. It would be equivalent to saying Satan's city hall, right? Like this is the place where things happen. And Jesus is saying here the kingdom of God is going to be an assault on the plans of the enemy, that the same place where all the strategy of the enemy to attack us is coming, that's going to get attacked. But it's more than just that. The gates of hell represent a place of demonic sacrifice. And this is the one that really blew me away the first time I was ever in Israel. To hear Jesus talk about this place And to know where he said this, it goes back to Caesarea Philippi. That picture can come back on the screen. But this was a place of many bad things, including child sacrifice. That same little hole, this this cave right here, this well that used to be filled with water, as they would worship their god, whether it was Baal or whether it was Pan, the Greek and Roman god, What they would do is they would take their children, a child, and they would take them to these waters and throw the child into the water. And if the child sank, they believed the offering was accepted. And if the child floated, they believed the offering was not accepted. But here's what was so sad about it. Either way, the child would die. And can you just think about this for just a minute? Jesus is standing somewhere in this city. And this this hole, if you go there, this hole is massive. You can see it from anywhere in the city. You can imagine Jesus saying these words, the gates of hell, which by the way, that hole was also called the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of the underworld. When Jesus says this, he's saying the gates of hell, this place, will not prevail against the people of God. Man, to hear that, to think this is what Jesus means when he says these words, that our purpose is to fulfill this absolute truth, that the place of the enemy will not prevail against the people of God, that his church will stand no matter what. That we activate a new or excuse me, that we acquire a new purpose, and lastly, that we activate a new power. Verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Some people, again, they look at this and they think, oh, this is Jesus giving Peter the authority to let who he wants to into heaven and not. In fact, some of you kind of know that this is where this comes from, right? Like you get the joke that starts, you know, you show up at the pearly gates and who's there waiting with the keys? Peter, right? That's the joke. It's not true. Peter was not the first pope and succeeded a line of, of popes or Peter's that literally decide and determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not what Jesus is saying here. 
Yes, Ephesians 2.20, God establishes the apostles and he establishes the prophets to help establish the church, absolutely. And in a way, Peter opens up the kingdom to the Gentiles, absolutely, all that's true. But this is not giving Peter and future successors absolute power to decide on a whim whether people are going to enter the kingdom of God. That's not what this is saying. That the power being activated in Peter, and it's the same power that we as a people of God have, is this. And I don't have a ton of time to talk about this, but it's these two things. The authority of God's word and the discernment of the Holy Spirit. That Matthew 18 says the same phrase, and what it means is this, that we have the authority of God's word for us to determine and to discern what is true, what is heavenly, what is, what is the spiritual realities that are going on. This has been given to us. That believers have the power to discern truth and the realities of heaven and hell because of these two things, the authority of God's word and the discernment of the Holy Spirit. And this is what God has given us, that every person that encounters him, we have been given a new identity, we've acquired a new purpose, and we have gained, we have activated a new thing, a new power within us. It's not us, it's God pouring that into us. And then verse 20 says this, and this is kind of one of those verses you wish you could just kind of not talk about because it's so awkward and and weird weird where it's at, but I feel like we got to say it. Verse 20 says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? Peter, you answered correctly. Now don't tell anybody. It's weird, isn't it? What we, what we seem to understand here is that we know that this knowledge getting out at this time would have created a riot, would have created a, a political situation. And Jesus, in, his, in all of his knowledge and all of his understanding, understood that this wasn't the time for this to happen. But here's what's crazy. Like, there was going to come a day where this was going to be unleashed where it would have been the time to share. And Peter does, in Acts 2, Peter shares this with people. He shares this. For the rest of his days, he's going to share who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the true and better. All because an encounter that he had with Jesus. So here's the application. Have you ever, have you ever encountered Jesus? Has this changed who you are? It's going to change you. If it's a real encounter, it's going to answer the question who Jesus is, and it's going to require you to adjust your life. And for for all of us, it's not just like a little adjustment here and there. No, it's going to change who you are. Your identity is going to be something else, something different. And the question is, is that you? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask the question, have you encountered Jesus? Do you see him for who he is, the Messiah, the chosen one? Or do 
you just know a lot of good stuff about him. Have you made Christ in your image? Do you see him for who he truly is? Just a minute, we're going to sing. And I want to invite our prayer partners to the front. If you just need someone to pray with, if you need someone to talk to, we invite you on this journey, this, this series together, that we would discover more and more who Jesus really is and how he has intersected our lives. So let's stand to our feet as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time we have together. I pray, Lord, that we would, our identity, Lord, would be wrapped up in who you say that we are, Lord, that our identity uh, is not, uh, it's not us deciding who you are, Lord. It's not us deciding your identity. It's you deciding our identity, Lord. And God, you've called us no longer to be sons of disobedience and children of wrath. You have called us to be heirs in your kingdom, Lord. And Father, I pray that we have encountered you. And if not, Lord, that today would be the day where we would encounter you for your kingdom and for your glory. So Father, thank you for our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.